For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the highest concentration of organ pipe cactus is in Sonora, Mexico, but that space is being lost to agriculture and other industries. Hear about the efforts to study and conserve this unique habitat. And Tucson resident Andrew Schott was just 11 years old when he and his older sister hid in the fields of northern Holland to escape the Nazis. His harrowing story of survival comes from the Children of the Holocaust series, a living history project from AZPM. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Organ pipe cactus are the tall, column-like cactus that have long, spiny arms that grow up from the trunk. They're found in Arizona, Sinaloa, and Baja, California, but they grow at their highest density only in Sonora, in a narrow band along the Gulf of California in the southernmost part of the state. Next, from the Fronteras desk, KJZZ's Kendall Blust takes us to a research station located in this unique habitat. It's dusk at the Navapatia field station, and a cacophony of warblers, willets, and other birds fills the otherwise calm, still evening. Navapatia is a small fishing town on the Hiabampo estuary near the Sonoran border with Sinaloa, and it's part of what's known as the Pitayal Costera, the densest concentration of organ pipe cactus or Pitayo dulce in the plant's range. It's a unique ecosystem. It's not particularly large, but it is found nowhere else on the planet. Michael Krzywicki is the director of the Navapatia field station. He's here to study the diverse resident and migratory birds in the coastal Pitayal. You could be looking at snowy egrets, reddish egrets, white ibis, long-billed curlew and, and wimbrels out in front of you, and then you're hearing verdins and broad-billed and Costa's hummingbirds behind you. Biologists opened the field station here nearly 20 years ago to collect basic data about an ecosystem that was poorly understood, he says. Since then, they've recorded more than 250 bird species and hundreds of plants. Each winter morning, the research team counts birds in plots scattered throughout the Pitayal. So this is a 200 meter by 200 meter plot, and each time we visit, we try to take a different route throughout it, but still covering the majority of, of the space. As we walk, this wiki looks and listens for birds, jotting them down on a clipboard. Cactus wren thing. It's also a northern mockingbird calling off that way. There's been a cardinal singing that direction. Within 20 minutes, we've spotted 12 species. This plot was previously clear-cut for a failed shrimp farm. Some have been impacted by cattle grazing, others are undisturbed. The comparison helps researchers understand how land use changes impact birds and the ecosystem. By studying a bird community, you can understand what's happening at multiple levels of the food chain. That can help efforts to preserve this stunning habitat. Towering columnar cactus meet leafy coastal mangroves and calm waters where bottlenose dolphins dive just 
off the shore. It's rapidly disappearing. 40% has been lost since the year 2000, Kurzweiki says. Yo llegué en 1960. Field station cook Guadalupe Mendivil needs tortillas for that night's dinner. She says her family arrived in Navopatia in 1960, when there were just a handful of houses on the edge of the dense Pitayo forest. She wishes it could go back to the way it was, she says. Though still remote, clear-cutting for shrimp farms and agricultural fields has eaten up many of the native plants her family uses for food and medicine. And irrigation from those fields regularly floods the dirt roads, making Navopatia harder than ever to access. Fewer tourists come here now, says her brother Luis Fortino Mendivel. He's mending a mist net researchers use to catch birds so they can gather demographic information and tag them with tiny metal bands. The arrival of the field station changed his life, he says, offering him opportunities to visit new places and learn about birds and ecotourism. And it's also the best chance they have to preserve what's left of the Pitayal. It's hard to understand the value of a place like this unless you spend time here. So Krizwicki says they bring in student groups, ecotourism, and interns from both the U.S. and Mexico. Enrique Sanchez interned at Navopatia this winter. He calls it a hidden treasure. It's 6.30 in the morning and we're kayaking across the estuary to Isla Masocari to do a bird count on a remote plot of island Pitayal surrounded by mangroves. Roseate spoonbills and yellow-crowned night herons perch on the branches and a mangrove warbler flits through the long roots. Sanchez says he'll never forget holding and being bitten by his favorite bird, the cardinal. He wants more people to get that experience and to see just how special this place is before its range shrinks much further. Because it's a habitat type that's found nowhere else, I think it's worth saving because it's a part of our global biological and cultural heritage. At Navopatia, they'll keep working to understand and conserve the Pitayal. I'm Kendall Blust reporting from Navopatia. Between 1941 and 1945, Germany's Nazi regime murdered two-thirds of Europe's Jewish population. Of the six million Jews who were victims of this genocide known as the Holocaust, an estimated 1.5 million were children. Against all odds, some children managed to survive. Children of the Holocaust is AZPM's Living History Project. Producer Laura Markowitz interviewed 19 child survivors of the Holocaust who now live in southern Arizona. This is an excerpt from the story of Andrew Schott. Be aware that this story contains descriptions of the attempted genocide of the Jewish people and may not be suitable for all listeners. Andrew Schott was born in Amsterdam in 1931. 
Two years later, Hitler rose to power in neighboring Germany. I was a happy-go-lucky boy going to elementary school. And in 1940, right after I turned nine years old, the Germans invaded Holland. The persecution of the Jews started, and I didn't even know I was a Jew. He didn't know he was a Jew because he wasn't raised as a Jew. His mother had a Jewish father and a Gentile mother. Andrew's father was a secular Jew. According to the Nuremberg race laws, anyone who had three or four Jewish grandparents was considered a full Jew. My family qualified except my mom as a full-blooded Jew. The Germans went with trucks through the streets of Amsterdam and rounded up Jewish men of working age. My brother ended up at Auschwitz. He was eight years older than I am. They never saw him again. And Andrew's oldest sister had been working as a translator in Belgium when the war broke out. And they never heard from her again and still don't know how she died. Now it was just Andrew, his parents, and his sister Mimi, who was six years older. And then things, you know, started to get worse. Uh, the teacher gave me an envelope to take home, but inside was a piece of cloth with two yellow stars on it, and uh, a note that said that I was to wear one of those on my outer garments, on my left chest. Failure to wear it was punishable by death. Then they started banning all Jewish kids from public schools. And they took one small school in Amsterdam, I don't remember the name of it, but it became known as the Jew School, and that's where I met Anne Frank. Of course, she was just a girl then. She wasn't famous. She was a little older than me, about a year and a half. But Anne was what we call today a tomboy. She didn't play with dolls or anything. She played in the streets soccer with the guys. And then things got worse and worse and worse. Jews were banned from hospitals, parks, theaters, and stores. In each neighborhood, they took one mom-and-pop store and allowed it once a week to close early and then open up again and sell to Jews. My mom took me with her, and when we got there, there was a sign in the window, no Jews allowed when humans are on the premises. Andrew's father was Elijah Schott. Before the war, he had been a gymnastics instructor. One day, he received a postcard in the mail. It ordered him to report to the train station for what the Nazis called relocation. By then, we knew you're going to the camps. He looked at that and he said, well, they already got one of my sons and one of my daughters. I'm not going to go. He went into hiding. My dad would come home on weekends to have dinner with the family. Well, that didn't work out too well because after about two or three weeks, on Sunday afternoon, he was home for dinner, and uh, I went outside to play with my friends, and four men in uniform showed up at the house, and uh, they went inside, and they came back out with my dad. So I went over there to talk to him, but they wouldn't let me near him. Those guys were all bigger than him, much bigger, and 
He looked so puny between those four guys. I watched him walk down the street, and that's the last time I saw my dad. Mom said, you know, it's time for us to disappear. She put a few necessities for each of them in paper bags. When they left the apartment, they hoped that people who saw them on the street would assume that they were just carrying groceries. We took a suitcase, you know, everybody knew what we were doing. She led them to an abandoned house on a canal. There's no water, no heat, no toilet facilities. We were not the first ones up there. And there were others up there that were relatives of mine. But we were the only kids. So my sister turned to me. She said, you know, this is not going to work. I was uh, 11 by then. So she talked to mom. She said, why don't you let me take Andy to the northern part of Holland, where I used to go to, where she went to school. She said, we can live there among the farms. She talked mom into it. We went to the Amsterdam Harbor that night. So she talked one of the captains of the freighter to take us with him to Friesland, which is the northern province. When we got there early the following morning, she had it all planned out. The farms there were pretty well scattered. And so we would find a barn and sleep upstairs on whatever was there. We would get up early because we did not want the farmer to get into trouble because hiding Jews was uh, was punishable by going to the camps himself. What we would do, we watched where the farmhands went to work in the fields. And they climbed on a horse and a wagon. So we just followed the wagon with the most workers on it. And when they got to the field, they got out and went to work and we stayed with the wagon. And we watched out for German patrols. And they were easy to spot because in, in Holland, it's below sea level and very flat, except for the highways and the roads, they build up on dikes. So you could see a vehicle you know, a long ways off. And if they were motorized, we knew they were Germans because they're the only ones that had gasoline. When a patrol came by, they would pretend to be field hands. They would move things in and out of the wagon and look busy. At the end of the day, they trailed the wagon back to the farm. Andrew says that was the most dangerous time because the Germans paid a bounty to Dutch people who informed them about hidden Jews. We could not count on all of them being sympathetic. So we leave the area. We never spent the night in the same area we spent the day. And then we'd start over again, looking for a place to sleep. And we got away with that for some time. Every day they scrounged for food. They picked up scattered grain that had been left for the animals. Andrew says they blew off the dust and ate it raw. They hunted for birds' eggs in the ditches. They ate those raw, too. And they also ate sugar beets from the fields. One night, uh, we were looking for a place to sleep. It had been raining. It was dark outside, and we were walking through the fields. All of a sudden, my sister grabbed my arm and squeezed. That was our signal. If you thought of any danger in, in a wet, level country, you don't want to say, shh, or stop, you know, that you can hear that mile away. So we stopped, 
And she whispered to me, she said, look up ahead. There's a caravan up there. We could see the outline of trucks. And at the head of the column, we could see some glows and some laughter. Evidently, we had come up on a German convoy uh, taking food and stuff like that to Germany. The soldiers were taking a smoke break. Andrew turned to leave, but Mimi wanted to see what was in the trucks. They quietly climbed the embankment. A typical military truck with the canvas over it. I went to the back, and I went underneath that canvas with my hands, and I got a hold of something, but I couldn't get it out. The canvas was too tight, and I kept trying, kept trying, and I had a suspicion of what I had, and I really wanted that. And so my sister came over, and she says, they're breaking up, let's get out of here. I said, I got a hold of something, I can't get it out. So she pulled on the canvas, you know, and finally came out. And then we turned around, and we could hear footsteps. So Domias, that hill we had so carefully climbed upon, we thought we could just walk down. And, of course, the first step we took, we tumbled head over heels and ended in the drainage ditch. And it, it had about a foot to 14 inches of water in it. And... I started laughing, and my sister didn't think that was the thing to do, so she put the, grabbed me by the back of my head and pushed it under water. And when she let go, uh, I realized I'd better be quiet. And we laid there until the trucks moved out. following morning, we took inventory of what we had. Well, I had a wheel of cheese, and uh, my sister had a bag of coffee beans. Coffee beans were useless to them. They had no way to brew it. And they didn't drink coffee. But Mimi knew it was valuable, and she decided to try to trade it for something they could use. So the following day, she borrowed a raincoat from one of the farm workers. She could have talked him into giving her the farm, but she was a pretty girl, you know. She put on that raincoat and put that coffee underneath, and she took me to a field and put me by a haystack, and she told me to stay there until she got back. And she went to the city. After she left, I got scared. What happened if they caught her and I'd be there without her and I didn't know what to do. So finally, late afternoon, she came back. And I said, let's make a deal. We're not playing this again. I said, we don't separate. And she agreed to that. People ask me, you know, Hey, that sounds like fun, you know, great adventure. Well, we lived with that for two years. We didn't know what was going on in the world. We were completely isolated. We saw planes go over back and forth, so we knew the war was still on. We had no way to shower or anything like that, and the drainage ditches were not very clean water. Um, I wore shorts because in Holland, Kids under 14 did not wear long pants. They, they had no spare clothing or anything like that. He and his sister struggled with cold and hunger and rain, and with the ever-present fear that if they were caught by the Germans, they would be shipped off to the death camps. After two years, we made a mistake. We'd been messing around looking for a place to hide. And then we finally found a barn 
and we went inside, and we just went up the ladder, and right by the there there was straw. We just conked out. Well, the following morning early, I'm a light sleeper. I still am. Uh, I woke up to a strange noise, and then I noticed there were over a dozen other people sleeping there. And you don't get away with that. Somebody is going to collect the, the bounty. So I got to those doors. I opened them up, and I saw three German Army Turks coming right at us. So I turned around, got to my sister, and I said, let's get out of here. They're coming. We started running. I don't know why. Why Where are you going to go? Then the gunfire started. And I looked over my shoulder where my sister had been running, and she was no longer there. All of a sudden, something hit my lake, and I went down. I laid there, and I looked at my lake, and uh, it was a little bit of blood, but not much. But then I looked right into the barrel of a rifle of a soldier standing there, and he took me to where those trucks were, and then after a while, the gunfire stopped. I was devastated by then because had they shot my sister. Andrew was 13 years old when he was captured by the Nazis. He was taken to a German processing camp, Westerberg. From there, he and the other prisoners were marched to the trains that would take them to Mauthausen concentration camp. I looked between the cattle cars there was another platform and another train, and that platform had nothing but women on it. And all of a sudden, I saw my sister. And, man, I was so happy, so I hauled out as loud as I can. But she didn't hear me, and by the time I could haul her again, the guard had hit me in the back with the rifle butt, knocked me down. They put us in those cattle cars, and they put us in there so tight, you couldn't move even reach up and touch my nose. The Allies had bombed the railhead at Mauthausen. So Mimi's train was sent to Dachau, and his train was headed for Bergen-Belsen. But the last two cars of the train were dropped off at Poppenburg, and Andrew was in the second-to-last car. So that's where he ended up. Poppenburg, slave labor camp. It was miserable. They put me in the first barracks. They just opened the door, shoved me inside and closed the door. And I remember sitting there all night and thinking, you know, where's my sister? Where's the rest of the family? Why am I here? What did I do so wrong that I deserved it? Our camp commandant was an SS officer that had been wounded, had an artificial leg, and he carried that little dagger, and he liked to carve on prisoners. For 11 months, Andrew was forced to do hard labor. We knew there had been an invasion because all of a sudden, you know, we found an increased amount of airplanes going over. Gunfire became closer and closer. And then a tank came through the gate. We were liberated by the British. Andrew weighed 79 pounds. He was sent to recover at a military hospital. It took months to get up to 96 pounds, and then they sent him back to Amsterdam. He was 14 years old. He found his mother and grandmother living in their same apartment. Two weeks after he returned, an ambulance brought Mimi home. She had 11 surgeries on her back. She's still alive. She's 97 years old. She will not talk about her time in the camp. 
Andrew, Mimi, and their mother emigrated to the United States. It was 1951. He served in the U.S. military for more than 25 years, and then he retired to southern Arizona. For decades, he didn't talk about what happened to him during the Holocaust. But today, he tells his story in schools and to community organizations. He thinks it's important. I think the kids need to know about this. They need to know how dangerous certain things can be because people have forgotten it. They just see it now. There's anti-Semitism is, uh, and if it isn't the Jews, it's some other. It it's, it never stopped. Why why do people have to be that way? There's there's enough on earth for everybody. All we need to do is get along. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. The full video interview with Andrew Schott is available now on the Children of the Holocaust page at azpm.org. It's part of an ongoing web series with new stories appearing every Wednesday through July 18th. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.